Duty at the time was among the dead. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning, this is Ina Choi and welcome to another Money for Nothing. Coming up, we're going to take a look at the markets with Stuart Allcroft, CEO of City Trust, and um, we'll also discuss the new change to MPF contribution that takes effect next week. Then Simon Gulpin of Invest Hong Kong will talk us through the new Startups Hong Kong Venture Program. He'll be joined by Erica Young of One Earth Design, herself a startup entrepreneur. Later, I'll also talk to Robert Sullivan of news agency Interfax about the debate on Hong Kong's energy mix and how the Russian-China gas deal will affect the mainland's own energy mix. The bad news is that progress is still much too slow and the finish line is still too far off. That was Christine Lagarde, the chief of the IMF, talking about the banking sector and how reform is lagging. We'll have more on that later. US and European stocks reached new record highs. The S&P 500 ended 0.6% higher at 1,911 points. It was stirred by more deals. Poultry producer Pilgrim's Pride is offering to buy Hillshire brands for $5.5 billion. And the Intercontinental Exchange Group is planning to spin off Euronext through an IPO after it sold a 33% stake in Euronext to a group of financial investors. But a couple of stories overnight painted a more worrying picture of the global economy. The OECD said exports by G7 countries and BRICS economies had fallen by 2.6% in the first quarter compared with the previous three months. Imports by those countries also fell by 0.1%. Also, Citigroup's CFO has warned that trading revenue could drop by as much as 25% this quarter from a year ago. That follows a similar warning from J.P. Morgan Chase. Bloomberg reports that the Chinese government is reviewing whether domestic banks' reliance on IBM's high-end servers compromises the nation's financial security. This is an escalation in the Sino-US dispute over spying claims and a blow to IBM. This is the Bloomberg report. Both sides are escalating. This comes just after a couple days after the United States Department of Justice indicted five members of the People Liberation's Army that's in China for cybersecurity or cyber espionage on the companies like Alcoa, like Westinghouse, companies that have core intellectual property. Now, here's what we know about what's happening here. We think that the China government, this is according to four people familiar with the matter, as you mentioned, they are pressuring people, uh, institutions like the Commercial Bank of China, like the Central Bank. Bank not to use IBM servers, the high-end servers, and instead to use local servers. Now, this is according, as I said, to four people familiar with the matter. It would be a further blow to IBM. Last quarter, Anna, they saw their revenues down some 20% in China. That was the first quarter of, uh, of 2014. Now, what they say, and this is IBM, is that a lot of this is cyclical and that this isn't a direct response to what's happening in terms of a Snowden effect, a fallout, that eventually it will pay 
pick back up. But also remember over the weekend, this is according to the FT, that consulting companies, groups like Bain and McKinsey, they were also put on notice by the Chinese authorities, at least companies were put on notice, not to hire them. You know, Anna, when we're trying to put a dollar figure or a euro figure or a yuan figure on all this fallout from Snowden, from espionage, it looks like we're getting closer to that $35 billion figure that was initially uh, put out by a group in Washington, the Snowden effect. They said that's what would remark uh, and lost sales to, to internationally and also to China because of the espionage concerns. Now it looks like they're actual real numbers. So that's um, the story on IBM being the latest victim in the Sino-US dispute over spying claims. I mentioned earlier that IMF Chief Christine Lagarde warned that banking reform was still too slow. Here's what she said yesterday. The good news is that the international community <clears throat> has made progress on the reform agenda. This is especially true for banking regulation under the auspices of the Financial Stability Board, the Basel Committee, and we're moving forward with stronger capital and liquidity requirements. It should certainly make the system safer, sounder, and hopefully more service-oriented. The bad news is that progress is still much too slow, and the finish line is still too far off. Some of this arises from the sheer complexity of the task at hand. Yet, we must acknowledge that it also stems from fierce industry pushback and from the fatigue that is bound to set in at this point in a long race. That's Christine Lagarde of the IMF. Her views were echoed by Bank of England Governor Mark Carney yesterday, who said there ought to be more reform of market infrastructure, following more evidence of rate rigging and forex manipulation. Let's take a look now at how Asian markets have opened. The Nikkei is down 2.3 points to 14,634. The Australian market is up 4 points to 5,494. Seoul is up almost 4 points to 2,001 points. Now, gold came under heavy selling yesterday with spot price falling 2% um, to its lowest level since February 7. And this morning, it dropped another uh, $2 to $1,263 um, an ounce. And meanwhile, 10-year Treasury yield was down two basis points at 2.52%. Um, I mentioned earlier that U.S. markets closed at a high. Well, it had some, they had some cashing up to do because Monday was a holiday and um, the market was responding to a slew of um, new positive data and speculation, speculation that the European Central Bank will, on June 5th, announce rate cuts and perhaps other measures to stimulate price increase and credit Grove. Now let's say hello to our first guest, Stuart Allcroft, CEO of City Trust Limited. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Enid. Now before we turn to um, MPF and how the new changes to contributions will affect all of us, let's take a look at the markets first. So more b um, bullish moves by the US and European markets, but I mentioned that um, exports uh, are down, and um, also a bit of bad news from your parent company yesterday. Surely, these are all signs that um, maybe 
um, something bad is looming? Uh, not really, no. I think the, the opposite. I think there's a lot of news out there in the market. There's a lot of cash out there in the market. And uh, what we've seen is uh, quite a lot of confidence in the markets too. Um, we're talking specifically about um, North America, US market. We're talking also about European markets where um, after the election results would appear to be um, a, a potential of a scale back of the scale of the European Union um, bureaucracy all of which could be quite a good thing. Um, but I think if you look at the markets as a whole, then uh, if you come across to the Asian region, they're not looking so, so, so good. They're still a bit in the doldrums. But remember that uh, even last night, S&P 500 hit a new all-time high. So markets aren't doing too badly. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost easy to forget that, hey, the Fed is tapering. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it exactly. It is winding down the <laughs> and, and no one's bothered either. easing experiment. Yeah we've ever seen yeah. and it seems that it's just you know countries like well em emerging market uh, the stock markets and also you know places like hong kong that are suffering um but i mean uh, there are a growing number of people who are saying that uh, a market correction in the u.s is long overdue i mean the last significant drop was what about four percent in april nothing near a ten percent fall no um, that's that and, and you're right I mean, the, full correction. there are pe people out there who are expecting the market to drop and that's a natural occurrence after you've seen such a sharp rise and an extended rise and any any fall back is actually a very positive thing for the market now we've still got a few days left in may and the old statement of sell in may and go away yeah perhaps um, after could, thursday's could work, you know? uh, maybe after thursday's <laughs> us revised gdp numbers yes but but you know we're we're at a point where the markets have done extremely well those that have been in it have probably now made a, quite a decent profit how bad is it to take a profit take a profit take some cash have a rest come back at the end of August when the markets may be either higher or lower. I don't know yet. Okay, so what I don't understand is markets booming, but why is some... Um why are JP Morgan Chase and also, you know, Citigroup um, um, seeing or expecting such a big drop in trading revenue? Trading activity, uh, particularly these announcements, uh, relates uh, to, to proprietary trading, to, to foreign exchange trading, um, and, 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 and the like. And that's not really been uh, where the market activity has been lately. Um, I can't comment about individual companies, but I, what I can say is that the, that the markets have been very steady without having the volatility. And volatility is what creates... Uh, trading activity. So there is a bit of, if you like, for, the, for those companies, and there are a lot of them that are very active in the trading area, when there isn't the volatility of the markets, which so there it, hasn't been, it hasn't been the, the, the business. We, we heard um, Christine Lagarde saying earlier that you know, banks are, well, you should do more to change your, your, uh, the way you do business. So are we seeing sort of a shift in how banks operate I think there's a general uh, desire out there among governments, about uh, among the media, regulators, that the banks might want to review the totality of their business. Um, maybe, as has been um, highlighted in the UK, of course, um, maybe there should be a separation of retail banking from investment banking. Uh, these are things that, I, I, again, I'm not going to comment on it other than to say this is what's out there for, for discussion purposes. Is it a good thing? Well, that depends on each individual company, and each company should make its own decisions in those circumstances.
circumstances. Okay, let's turn now to the new changes to Hong Kong's MPF scheme. So on June 1st, the maximum income level for MPF contribution goes up from 25,000 to 30,000. What does that exactly mean? Well, for every person who's in the MPF, that means that they will start to see an increase in their contribution. Uh, increase goes up from 1250 to $1,500 both by them and by their employer per month. So each person pays 250 more, like yes, most people. Yes, yes. Now, of course, the, the point of this, the, the MPF has been around for now 14 years. It's accumulating a pool of assets for people to use in retirement. Uh, there have been lots of um, statements about how it's not been doing terribly well, all of which I disagree with. Uh, do there you? Lots of, yeah, I do, yes. I mean, you'll get me back for another comment on that one. <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think, I mean, what, what the MPF has done is to assist people to provide something, but not everything, towards their retirement. And there have been a lot of false expectations of what the MPF could be doing. The false expectations are, for example, that when you retire, this will give you all the income that you need in your life. That's clearly not going to be the case. Uh, and, and there are demands out there from uh, legislators and others to have a universal pension scheme as well, which could replace the MPF. Uh, again, that's not, a, that's not a good model, uh, although there could be some supplement um, or assistance made by the government to improve what the MPF does for each individual member. Well, yes, because in most countries you would have a combination, right, of, um, of um, a sort of state-sponsored retirement scheme plus something that, manage, uh, that the private sector is managing for a profit. Precisely, And in yes. Hong Kong we seem only to have one and not the other. Yes, and I think one of the biggest flaws, in, in my view at least, of the MPF is that the, the, the contribution levels are capped. There shouldn't be a limit on the, on, on the contribution level. Um, well, as the, a you mean it's capped, um, the compulsory contribution is capped, but you can put as much as you want into it. Of course, and uh, many people, I do, and, and others do, put in as much as they feel comfortable to do. But that is not the majority. Uh, and I think this is where, both from the employer point of view and from the employee point of view, there could be a great deal more encouragement. At the moment, employers can get a tax benefit of up to 15% of a, an employee's salary or earnings um, for MPF contributions. Whereas for the employee, the tax benefit is limited to the cap which will go up to 1500 per month or 15000 uh, for the current year. Okay. Now, um, Stuart, let's take a pause there. I know that mm. um, Simon Goldman of Invest Hong Kong has a train to catch. So let's very quickly move to Simon and then we'll go back mm. to the issue of MPF returns if you can uh, hang on for a minute. So, Simon, you uh, Invest Hong Kong announced yesterday a new competition aimed to um, uh, in, in, in invite more interest in Hong Kong startup scheme. Tell us a little bit about it. Yes, well, we've launched the uh, Start Me Up uh, Hong Kong Venture Program for the second year. Uh, and the aim of this program is really to showcase the fact that Hong Kong has one of the fastest growing startup communities in the world now. And the aim is to attract founders and entrepreneurs from Hong Kong, but from around the world to consider putting in uh, applications with, for, for their business plans, but also to communicate to many of our high net worth individuals that they can support the startup ecosystem by perhaps becoming angel investors and investing directly in some of these startups. Now, at the moment, you need to be a qualified professional investor, don't you, in Hong Kong, in order to 
to um, invest in a startup, even if it's just you know a, a crowd sourcing model that's popular um, overseas? I think if you're talking about crowdsourcing, uh, yes, but uh, we're talking about people that are just dire- investing directly into enterprises and you don't need any qualification right. for that. And that's still uh, pretty rare in Hong Kong because if you see uh, a startup um, hitting a certain level of success, then quite often they just get snapped up by somebody from Silicon Valley and they just disappear from Hong Kong. Well, uh, I mean, a lot of the exits for startups are either to go public and list or to to make a trade sale to a much larger company. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to leave Hong Kong. There are examples where very big multinationals have bought startups here and and the companies have grown and expanded here. And um, so this competition aims to attract international companies or just Hong Kong companies? It's it's open to both. Um, our startup ecosystem here is very international. You know, we've seen the number of co-work spaces and incubators that cater for startups grow very dramatically in the last few years. We've seen, you know, a growth from just three co-work spaces in 2010 to well over 30 today. And 80% of the tenants in these co-work spaces come from outside of Hong Kong. Right. And um, so what would the the winners get if they win this competition? Well, we've got a number of partners and sponsors that are contributing prizes. uh, And the prizes amount at the moment to well over a half a million US dollars. But, uh, you know, we've got our our main partners, which are the Science Park and Cyberport, providing uh, quite generous incubation space and support programs for, for some of the winners. But we also have private sector supporters, companies like KPMG and Orangefield, that are going to provide free advice and support to the to the companies that qualify. Well, that is um, th- that is very attractive. Um, so, companies that are interested in the competition, what do they need to do? Do they submit a business plan? Yes, uh, it is a business plan competition. Uh, the closing date is the thirty first of July, and all the details of the competition can be found on the startmeup.hk website and also on the Invest Hong Kong website. Now, Singapore, of course. Um, is um, a rival to Hong Kong in many aspects. Um, we had um, David O'Reilly on the show yesterday talking about just that. But um, Singapore also wants to become a regional hub for startups. Um, so, how would you say Hong Kong can compete? against Singapore? Well, I think Hong Kong's competing very well. The fact that we're seeing so many founders, so many entrepreneurs voting with their feet, moving from Europe, moving from North America to Asia generally, uh, but such a sizable percentage choosing Hong Kong is, is very encouraging. And we often over. Overlook- why would they choose Hong Kong over Singapore? Well, you know, Hong Kong has a geographic advantage over Singapore. If companies are looking to access the China market or the Northeast Asian markets, uh, barriers to entry in Hong Kong are very low. There's no minimum capital for people to register companies. We also don't have a requirement that you need a local partner if you're starting a business here. So, you know, Hong Kong truly is the world's freest economy when it comes to startups. Great. Um, that's, um, thank, thank you very much. That's Simon Goldman, Director General of Investment Promotion at Invest Hong Kong. Um, let's bring in Erica now. Erica Young is the Chief Design Officer of One Earth Design, a startup that has benefited from Invest Hong Kong's initiatives. Erica, tell us a little bit about your company. Sure. Well, our, our company is One Earth Designs. It was actually grown out of a collaboration with communities in western China, out in Qinghai province, to alleviate their fuel constraint and 
um, a number of issues they had around fuel and energy usage in addition to uh, indoor air pollution. And so we found that moving to Hong Kong was really a great option for us as we decided to commercialize the product because we could get access to the uh, factories in southern China, access the emerging populations all in Southeast Asia as so well what, what as service are, our What are the products exactly? It's a, um, you could call it a, we focus in solar thermal technologies and the first product is a solar concentrator called Soul Source. And it basically is a solar cooker that allows you to use the light from the sun directly to cook. Wow, that's brilliant. Yeah. So how, um, what has the, well, what has Invest Hong Kong done for you? <laughs> well, uh, they helped us get set up here in Hong Kong. Uh, they put us in touch with a Hong Kong Science Park so that we could join the incubation program there. Uh, they've given us many platforms to kind of showcase our work and to talk about our ideas as well as connections to business partners within China. And um, are you making a profit? Uh, not yet. Uh, we actually uh, realized as a result of a collaboration with Hong Kong Science Park, we were inve um, invited to Inventions Geneva last year. And that made us realize that there's actually a market for us in the developed world as well. And so we just launched at retail a few weeks ago. And so we're hoping that, uh, that within this year we, could, uh, we can turn those tables. Brilliant. Good luck. Thanks. Thank you very much for joining us. That's Erica Young of One Earth Design. Now let's get back to you now, Stuart. Thank you for um, waiting patiently. MPF, you were saying people should be encouraged to contribute more and that will make it, um, well, that will give them more protection when, uh, when they retire. But a lot of people don't want to do that because they complain that returns are too, too low and the fees are too high. Yes, and, and these are exactly the opposite of what the, is really the truth. <laughs> um, the returns are a, fu a function of what the markets have been doing. Now, many people who have been investing into MPF have actually been into some of the safe or so-called safe funds, very low risk, but low risk is inevitably going to be much lower return. Um, but if people have been uh, choosing global funds and, and, and some of the more uh, high-risk funds, which are very very sensible to use if you're if you're doing it on a on a regular monthly basis because you can buy at high points you can buy at low points and, and market movement will help to give you a better return um, that would that would ultimately lead to certainly higher returns than would have been achieved if you'd just left your money on deposit which of course is virtually nil so I mean, the, the whole point of this is it is a long-term savings program and and the the more use of equity-type products for stock markets in long-term investing, the potential for better return improves. I mean, there is, um, a, a, I suppose, a, a big range in fees um, depending on yes, and, and what fees kind of are products an, you buy. Are, are another big issue. Are, they, are they coming down, though? I mean, is the trend... Fees are not a big issue. Um, I know that they are good media coverage, and and some of the well, some of the regulators want to have They are rather high compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, but they're only high whilst we are still not as big as the rest of the world. You know, we're, we're still talking about a market where some some of the players are losing money, even though allegedly they they've got uh, high fees. Um, typically, if you are buying uh, funds through an MPF, you have no front end load. So there again, you've missed 
out on any charge, so that's a good start. Secondly, the annual management fees are generally around 1.5% or thereabouts, and total expenses are less than 2%, where typically equity funds in the market, equity mutual funds, unit trusts, would have total expenses of over 2%. So MPF funds are already charged at a lower rate than if you were going to your bank or to your investment advisor just to buy a regular mutual fund. So how bad can that be? (laughs) (laughs) All right, thank you. Thank you for joining the show today, Stuart. Um, We have to switch over to look at the markets uh, for energy now. With me is Robert Sullivan, senior correspondent at news agency Interfax, who covers the energy sector. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. Thank you for coming into the studio. Now, energy is a big story this month here in Hong Kong, the government has begun a public consultation on, um, well, how are we going to get our energy in the future? And mainland China has signed a massive $400 billion gas supply deal with Russia. Well, let's take a look at Hong Kong first. The choices seem to be either buy more power um, or rely um, on the mainland China more for our power or um, produce more power ourselves from gas facilities. Um, Okay, how to, how, what are the pros and cons, very quickly, for these two options? Yeah, so like you said, there's two options have been put forward for consultation, and the, the big change with the first one would be importing 30% of Hong Kong's electricity directly from the China southern power grid. Um, the second option, the, the main focus of that would be generating 60% of Hong Kong's power locally from gas-fired facilities. I think the main point to consider here in both of those is that even though the second option would be locally uh, generated power through gas, uh, all of this gas would be bought from China. So there's, uh, it's, it's difficult to, to, to get away from the connection with the mainland for, for the power needs. And, I mean, there's a concern about the reliability of, the southern, uh, of China's southern grid compared with how, you know, how regular our local um, electricity providers are. Yeah, that's been the main point that's been brought up for, for why the, uh, the second option might be better. The CLP and Hong Kong Electric have both had a a stellar record for uh, for reliability for power, and there are some concerns that if we started relying um, up to thirty percent of the imported power from the China Southern Power Grid, uh, there's no way to guarantee that the the reliability would be at the same levels as that uh, businesses here have been used to. And I mean, the big gas deal that China has just signed with Russia will that have an impact on Hong Kong? Um, it could in the future. The this gas that is going to be coming down um, into Hong Kong right now and for the next for the foreseeable future really is going to be sourced from Central Asia. So this is actually another quite a huge pipeline, series of pipelines um, that our gas would be coming from. I mean, it's quite amazing to think that there's this huge long pipeline from uh, places like Turkmenistan that's sending gas all the way to Hong Kong, right? Is it, is it a safe way of, of um, bringing gas to Hong Kong? It is. I mean, there's um, barring technical difficulties with pipelines. It's it's quite a reliable way, and um, um, I mean, depending on political issues, uh, it can be even safer than transporting LNG. Um, but yeah, it, it's relatively safe and secure. Uh, Stuart, you you yeah, have a I question. Was going to ask why, if, if we can get gas from Turkmenistan into China, why can't we use the high-speed rail network <laughs> to put a pipe into Hong Kong for the same gas? Well, have a have a pipe along the tracks. Yes, mean? why not? 
Yeah, yeah no. Thought. Yeah, they they've built this pipe. They've kind of put it, and there's an underwater section, and it's a uh, it's a fascinating piece of infrastructure. But um, might pay for the railway. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, gas, but overall gas uh, makes up a teeny tiny proportion of uh, China's current energy mix. Um, is it is the country behind in adopting cleaner fuel? Um, it is, but this is uh, this has been a product of of China's rapid development and just the the sheer influence and weight of coal in um, in, in China. They um, right now it's about. Five percent of China's energy mix is, is is natural gas. They're trying to push it up to about ten percent by 2020, um, but by that point, coal will still be accounting for about sixty percent. And um, I mean, when we're talking about energy mix in Hong Kong, nuclear, of course, is the other option. Do you think that's likely to uh, are we are we likely to see an increase in the proportion of nuclear energy in Hong Kong, given what happened in Fukushima? No, people I've talked to who've been talking to the government have said that they are not willing to consider going above um, what we import now. Um, it can get anywhere up to about 30% the CLP is taking of the power they generate. And um, the, the, the two options have proposed actually that this would both go down to 20% in either option. Um, and it sounds like the government is not interested in in pursuing any um, increased imports of nuclear energy. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us, gentlemen. So that was Robert Sullivan of Interfax and also Stuart Allcroft, CEO of City Trust. We've come to the end of the show, but before I go, let's take a look at the weather. There will be sunny periods and isolated showers. It's hot with a maximum temperature of around 32 degrees in the urban areas and a couple of degrees high in the new territories. The outlook may fine and very hot in the next few days. This is Ina Choi. Thank you for listening to Money for Nothing. I'll be back tomorrow at 8. Back chats coming up, but first, the news. President Obama has said nearly 10,000 American troops will remain in Afghanistan next year following the end of combat operations. The president said in a speech from outside the White House that the troops would advise the Afghan army and support counterterrorism operations against al-Qaeda. The plans have yet to be signed by the incoming Afghan president. The BBC's Ali Magpul reports from Washington. President Karzai has been out of step with almost every other voice in his administration in not wanting to agree to a continued presence of U.S. troops here after the end of this year. Both of the remaining